Uh, let's begin. We're going to start in chapter 4, but I want to show you something. Uh, you realize that in the Bible, chapter divisions are put in there so we can find certain spots in the Bible, but actually in original language, there, there are none. And so whenever you come to a chapter break, I'm always looking at that to see if, if there is some relationship between what has been said and what is being said, because sometimes it's very important you, you see something there. Uh, and our tendency many times is just to stop at the end of the chapter and put the Bible down. I, I like to always just start in just a, a couple verses into the next chapter to see what's there. Sometimes there's quite a, quite a bit of relationship there. Other times there, there, it's a chapter break because something different is, is going on, especially in the Old Testament. Now, we looked at chapter 3, and we saw that God was talking about the today of Moses and then the children of Israel in the wilderness, their today, and he goes and talks about their rebellion and so on. And then he comes down here to chapter, in chapter 3, verse 19, and it says, So we see that they, primarily meaning the children of Israel in the wilderness, they could not enter in because of unbelief. Now this verse is a concluding verse for chapter 3 because he's concluding some of the things he says by that verse. And it's a connecting verse as we move on to chapter 4 because what he says becomes the basis for what he begins now in chapter 4 beginning with uh, and talking about the rest of God. So that's just one example. Now what I want to do is read some of the verses. I don't want to read the whole chapter, but just some of the verses here, and then, then we'll talk about some things. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spoke in a certain place of the, of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not, and because of unbelief. Now, when you look at the, the chapter and you, you read about rest, it's almost as though you, you finish the chapter and say, now what exactly is he meaning when he's talking about rest? And when I was looking into this, this was an interesting thing that they did back then, uh, the orators, those who, who uh, spoke, those who... who uh, talked uh, in, in so, so to speak, uh, religious circles, they would take a word and they would take the, the meaning of that word and they would wring all kind of meanings out of it. 
so, so that there would not just be one specific thing that they're talking about using the same word, but they would be, be bringing out you know, two or three different things out of the same word. And, and that's what's happening here in, this ver- in these verses. And I believe that the rest that's spoken, spoken about here is a threefold rest. First of all, it's talking about uh, the promised land. And we'll look at that in a minute. The second thing it's talking about is the rest that we see that God entered after the the sixth day of creation, or the seventh day of creation. He enters enters into this rest, so he's talking about that, that rest. And then he's talking about the rest, or I'll say this, the peace of God that every believer is to move in, or to be in. So you have this threefold thing there that he's talking about. First of all, uh, the actual promised land. Chapter 3, verse 8. Harden not your hearts as in the, day of, in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation that said, They do always err in their heart. And they have not known my ways. Now he's specifically there talking about the children of Israel that provoked him in the wilderness. Those particular ones, that generation, did not enter into God's rest. That rest is talking about primarily the promised land. Now I, this morning, was was looking at that and I went back to Numbers. Oh, and, and look at verse 17. But with whom was he grieved 40 years? Was it not with them that had sinned whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? See, so he's talking about that generation that did not enter into his rest or the promised land. Now, in Numbers 20, which was alluded to in chapter 3, turn there with me. Numbers 20, verse 3 says this, And the people chode, or they chided, if you will, with Moses and spoke, saying, would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. So you see throughout Numbers, you see the children of Israel provoking God. They send the uh, 12 spies into the land. They come back. The people believed the 10 spies, their report. And it says that the 10 spies and the people moved in unbelief, basically, And they came against Moses. See, they didn't come to Moses to talk with him. The Bible specifically uses, two or three times at least, that the people came against Moses, and they began to murmur and complain. And as soon as they get this report from uh, chapter 13 about the people of the land, they say... Why did you bring us out into the wilderness here to kill us and to kill our children? Let us make captains, or let us make a captain, a leader, not you, Moses. Let us make a leader to lead us back to Egypt. And so you see this heart where they constantly provoke God, and they were moving in unbelief. And when he says here in chapter 20... Uh, when, when our brethren, uh, would to God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. That's referring back to whenever um, 
there was the rebellion with Korah, and it was Korah and 250 men who followed them. These were, these were leaders in Israel. And, and you know the story how, how Moses says, we'll see who's, who's righteous before God. And, and that day, the, the ground or the earth swallowed them up. But when that happened, the people still murmured and came against Moses. And they saw that. They saw that miracle, but they still murmured and came against Moses. And so God causes a plague to, to break forth uh, among the camp, and, and I think it was 14,700, I think it was 14,700 people died before the plague is stayed or stopped. And so here, even after that, they say, they're, they're coming against Moses, would to God that we had died when our brother died of the plague. Unbelief. To conquer or to move into that promised land for the children of Israel was going to take faith. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So entering into the promised land or entering into Cana is one meaning of the word rest. The next meaning, go back to Hebrews 4, is that the, it's talking about the rest that God entered the seventh day. Verse 4, For he spoke in a certain, certain place, of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. Now, the writer to the Hebrews, look in verse 7. He, he quotes, he's quoting here again, just like in chapter 3. He's quoting from Psalm 95. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David today, and he's talking about the today of David the people that David was ministering to, the people he was leading in his day. Now, the writer here in Hebrews attributes Psalm 95 to David. David says in, in Psalm 95 that if the people of his time would harden their hearts, that they're not going to enter into the rest of God. But 400 years prior to what David said... When he said that in Psalm, Joshua took them into the promised land, the actual physical promised land. So David here is not speaking about the promised land relating to Cana, because Joshua had already taken the people into the promised land. But he comes along and he says, now if you harden your heart today, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. If you harden your heart, you will not enter into rest. He uses the word rest. So there's another rest he's talking about. Now go back to Genesis chapter 1. You see this phrase in the first chapter of Genesis. In verse 5, And the evening and the morning were the first day. Verse 8, and the evening and the morning were the second day. Uh, verse 13. And the evening and the morning were the third day. Verse 19. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Verse 23. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Now, where's the other one? Uh, verse 31. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. 
Now chapter 2, verse 2. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. Now, if you read chapter 2, one of the things that you will see is that phrase that is used after every day in creation, and the evening and the morning was the first day, the second day, so on and so forth. After creation, when he starts the seventh day, you do not see that phrase anymore. You don't see the evening and the morning was the seventh day. Because God enters into the Sabbath, so to speak, and he's showing them something. Remember when we looked at Leviticus and we looked at the Sabbath, they celebrated the Sabbath for, for several reasons. But one of them was God rested on the seventh day. But that was not just to be a physical rest like, like the children of Israel. They didn't do any work. This was to testify that God entered into a perpetual rest. And that is why you do not see the evening and the morning for the seventh day. Because God couldn't put that in there because he's moving in this perpetual rest as an example to all the people. All those that would see it, all those that would desire it, and all those that would order their life aright, so to speak, to allow God to bring them into this perpetual rest. So that's the second meaning of the word in Hebrews, the same word, the second thing that's moving there. Let's go back to Hebrews. The third thing that I saw when I was studying this is that there there is a relationship between rest and peace. Now, one may be the result of the other. I I don't know. I I don't want to use them as an interchangeable uh, thing exclusively. But for our purposes, I'm going to say that we are to enter into rest or we are to enter into peace. That the peace of God keep your, what is it, your hearts and minds. So that when you come to Christ you move into a rest that you did not know before that. But there is more of the rest or the peace of God than we initially experience. Now, how many of you can remember when you first came to Christ how there was turmoil probably in in a lot of our hearts uh, and, and there was a change within us and, of course, that change was was the Holy Spirit or Christ coming to dwell within us. When he comes, he brings something with him that is to continue in our heart and life, and that is the peace of God. Now, inner peace is based upon, I believe, two basic things. One of them is being right with God. Look at... uh, Hebrews 4, verse 3. For we which have believed do enter into rest. Or having believed is, is the, the, um, probably a better translation. Having believed, we enter into his rest. Now that's referring initially and, and then on from there. But the, the point is, 
the heart must be right with God in order for there to be peace. In order for us to be brought into this, this place of rest, there must be a heart that is right with him. The second thing is seen in verse 10, where, where there is a, a ceasing of our own labors. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. And he's pointing back to creation, to where you see on the seventh day there's this perpetual rest. God ceased from his works. To have inner peace, the way God desires us to have, in our heart, we must cease from our own works. Now, there are two things that I believe will keep us from entering into rest. One of them is seen in chapter 3, verse 9, and that is willful disobedience. When your fathers tempted, tempted me, proved me, and saw my works 40 years. The second thing that's seen in this verse or um, in this chapter, is a lack of faith, which we looked at before. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So willful disobedience and a lack of faith will hinder us from having the peace of God. So, so that if we want to have the peace of God or we want to move into this area of rest, if we are willfully disobedient or, or we are in unbelief, we cannot move into that area. We may want to, but, but God uh, must work in our hearts to bring us to, to the place where we believe Him. Now, the children of Israel, remember when the spies came back and they gave them the testimony. In order for them to move and be brought into the promised land, they were going to have to have faith in God, or they were going to have to trust God to work in them, or they were going to have to trust God to bring them into a certain place even though they were going to experience difficulties. See, they were going to have to actually battle in the land. They were going to have to uh, trust God to provide all that they needed. Uh, they were going to have to deal with the Amorites, the Philistines, and, and all these uh, giants in the land like we saw in Numbers 13. And for them to do that, they're going to have to trust God. And I was thinking about that verse in numbers. And I was thinking, I know that difficulties await me in life. Do you know difficulties await all of us? They await us. And not just the Christian, but everybody that lives has some difficulty that they have to go into and they have to go through. And I'm thinking, Lord, the difficulties that are coming 
Will I have faith in you to bring me through them? Or will I be like the children of Israel and move in unbelief? Now, I would much rather be in a situation with God than without God. But people, Christians, they actually go through situations, circumstances, and difficulties, and they can be there in them and go through them with God or apart from God. So we have basically the same thing with us as they had with them. And we look at them and we say, why couldn't they just trust God? It sounds so easy, doesn't it? It sounds easy when we're not thirsty and our bellies are full. It sounds so easy when we're not uh, going against people that are nine feet tall that can wield a sword the length of your height. See, it's easy to say, why couldn't they do it? Why couldn't they enter in? Why couldn't they just trust God? But what about us? When we go through our difficulties, we can fall after the same similitude as they did. And we're not even in, so to speak, the physical wilderness that they were. We're in a country that allows religious freedom. We're not persecuted physically. We have some advantages. And yet you see many times with Christians that they are moving in unbelief and they're not trusting God in their own circumstances and their own difficulties. Now, I'm not saying it's easy by no means. But the lack of faith will keep us from rest. It will keep us from peace. See, the children of Israel could have moved into the promised land and eventually came to a physical rest, although this this here's not primarily talking about physical rest, but they could have come into a physical rest in the promised land to where they defeated their enemies and the land rested, like in Joshua's time. That was available to the, the generation prior to that and the generations after uh, Joshua that, that, that failed. So there seems to me, in the, especially in the Old Testament, that there's more failure as far as faith is concerned with the masses than there is success. Verse 1, Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, that any of you should seem to come short of it. I'm going to read that from the NIV. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands... See, so, so he's not talking about the physical promised land here. He's talking about a perpetual rest, moving into this rest or peace of God that he has for each individual Christian. Therefore, since the promise of entering into his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. 
verse 9. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. Um, the NIV says this, and I like this. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, an observance of the Sabbath. Because he's talking to Hebrew Christians. They, they're, they're hit, he's hitting the, the mark with them. And when he says the word Sabbath, he, they know what he's talking about when they're talking about rest. See, The Jews were very big. You see this with Jesus. Don't do this on the Sabbath. Don't do this on the Sabbath. You know, all related to the law and the physical activity. And Jesus said, that's not the Sabbath. You're missing it. There is to be a perpetual rest. Now, it's not talking about going home when you're tired and going to sleep. It's not talking about that kind of rest. It's talking about an inner rest within. So that what I do or you do as a Christian, now this is very, very hard to understand. What we do comes forth from rest. It's almost like it's a contradiction of terms. Now, this this is interesting. The word remaineth in verse 9. There remaineth, therefore, a rest uh, to the people of God. That is a a middle middle voice verb, which is not in English. It's only in in Greek. And that means that the subject performs an action upon himself for his own benefit. So so the, the action that's performed for your benefit, Christian, is... Entering into his rest. Moving in his rest. Verse 8. For if Jesus... Now the word Jesus here is the same word as Joshua. And um, the King James is probably... Well, I didn't look at this, but... I know the other translations translated as Joshua. But, and that's what it actually means. It's not talking about Jesus, although there's an application there. Um, I guess... But specifically talking about Joshua. For if Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. Now let me read that from uh, the NIV. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. See, if he was talking only about the rest that Joshua brought the children of Israel into the land, if he's talking only about that, Okay, then God would not have spoken of another day, another, another rest. Are you following me still? Okay, now I want to look at this here. This is another thing. Verse 10, for he that is entered into his rest, God's rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. That word cease there means to stop or to put an end to. There must be a ceasing in our hearts of everything. Now we know we get up and we have to work, right? You know you have to do certain things, correct? But everything that is done, and this is something that you have to be taught. Everything that is done is to be done from rest, inner rest. All the promises of God, I believe, are to be received in rest. 
all the fulfillment of the, of the body of Scripture, whatever that is, God takes from the body of Scripture and applies that to your life and gives you. All of that comes to you, and as it comes, you are to be in this place of rest. Now, I understand and realize that we are not always there. But there is to be a ceasing that God brings us into. Uh, you know, Christians sometimes, they, and I've said this before, they want to make the easy things hard and the hard things easy. God wants to show them very simply something, and they bring all these other things into the, 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 uh, the forefront, and they muddy the water, and they can't really move in what God's showing them because of all these other things. I mean, I'm not explaining myself. You sit and you hear a message. Is everything said applied to you? No. Now, I can sit there and apply every single thing that is said to me. And what happens is I'm in unrest, and I'm in so much unrest that God can't show me what he really wants to apply to my heart and life. So I even have to cease from that, ceasing from everything. I don't care what it is. See, there has to be something in our heart. That God, there's a ceasing. No more, you know, staying right there. Allowing God to bring whatever he desires there into your heart. Of his word. To do what he needs to do. Now, I find it very interesting. Let's just read two more verses here because this is, this is something, I, I believe. <laughs> Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. And let me get that from another translation. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest. Um, or let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest. And that would be by a ceasing, not by a labor. The way the King James uh, words that, let us labor, sounds like that you have to strive in that no. You have to cease in that. There must be a ceasing. If we're going to make progress in God, there must be, a, to some degree in our heart, a ceasing there so that we enter into the rest or the peace of God and now we can walk in Him in a, so to speak, relaxed manner and let what comes come, what goes, goes, what He brings to teach us, let that come, you know, because we have ceased and we have moved into a different place, now the Lord can start to teach us, okay, this is for you, this is not for you, this is what I want you to do, and so on and so forth. When you go to work, uh, saying something, not saying something, hearing God, everything, the whole thing that, that's related to you as a Christian will come to you as you cease. And, and that's the best I can explain it. But I like how the Lord puts things in the Bible. You say, well, 
you know, I'm in and out of his rest. Or I'm, I'm not ceasing in this thing. And the very next verse says, For the word of God is quick and powerful. We always take that and lift it out of its context there. Always. I have never, ever, that I could remember, have any one minister from that verse in the context of rest. Because that's the context. The context is... Today, if you will hear his heart, harden, harden not your heart. If you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. And the context is rest. If you examine the 11 verses before, verse 12, you will see the majority of the verses have the word rest in, and the other ones that don't have the word rest in are talking about rest. So that, that's the setting for verse 12 when you see, for the word of God is alive. The Word of God is alive and powerful to you, Christian, whether you are in rest or you are in unrest, whether you are in peace or you're not in peace. Because the Word of God is alive, alive. And He will come in a way to bring that word to you, to your heart, to your life, personally, to help you cease and to help you move into rest and to help you walk and maintain the perpetual rest that is spoken of and alluded to in the seventh day of creation. The word of God will be that which will help us in that thing there that we don't see and understand. So he says that the word of God is living. Whew. It's, it's something. You can read, you know, a chapter, two chapters. I'll, I'll speak of myself. You know, I can read certain things, come to a verse or come to a word, and, and all of a sudden it's like, you know, wow. Not, not because God showed you something in your mind. It's because something happened right in your heart, in your spirit. It's like, whew, God just, just took it, and there it is, and he opens it up, and he shines a light on it. You say, wow, is that good. Have you ever had that happen to you? It's because the word of God is alive. It's living. And the living word that comes forth and touches a part of you, brings life. Because it is the living word. It's quick. That's what the word quick means, living. It's alive. And it's powerful. The word powerful, um, what is it? It's the word we get energy, energesis from. That means it's effective. God uses his word and when he uses his word, it is effective. If God brings his word to you, that will be life and it will be effective to help you maintain this area in your life of perpetual rest. Have you ever been in rest? And then something come and boom. <laughs> Oh, yes. 
I'm telling you, it happens to all of us. Well, how fast can we get back into that area of rest? Well, you know, sometimes we need help, don't we? Don't we? Yeah. For the word of God is, is living and it's powerful. It's effective toward you personally to bring you and keep you. Let me read this from the NIV. For the word of God is living and alive. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that this is not a dead religion. Thank you, Lord, that it's not like the religions of the world where it's all head knowledge. You study and you study and you study to obtain something here. I don't study to know things here. It helps to, to, to use your mind when you teach. <laughs> I don't know how you could teach without it, but, but that's not the purpose of study. The purpose of study is, is to have the living word, as it says here, um, living and alive word come and do something within you. That, that's, that's the reason. That's, that should be the reason. You don't pick up the Bible and read it because it's the religious thing to do. Open your heart and say, Lord, let your living word touch my heart today. I don't need to, to know all this and that, Lord. I need a touch from you. Send your living word, Lord. Help me, Lord, when I read this. Teach me, Lord, to open my heart to you and not to harden it so that I would move into unbelief. But that you, Lord, would touch my heart. I'm convinced I'm convinced that if God doesn't touch our hearts, we will not walk with him. If God doesn't touch us in some way, here, at home, some way, that eventually we will turn and go a different direction. See, that is to be the difference between this Christianity and the religions of the world is that we have a God that's alive and he has a living word. I don't need to go to the Koran or any other book because there's no life apart from his word. I don't care what any book says. I don't need to debate anyone. You get the Jehovah, Jehovah Witnesses coming or, um, or the Mormons. They have the Book of Mormon. You read about three or four lines in some of these other books, and, and you get this taste in your mouth. Dry. It's very dry. There's nothing there. There's no, there's no, it's not the living word. The living word is to work in your heart and life to help you maintain rest. That's, of course, one of the reasons for the living word. And the word rest means a causing to cease from the vines, a causing to cease. So, so God sends his word to cause you to cease. Cease from what? From your works, from your labors. And to do the works of God, to do works, whatever that is. 
in a different way than the other religions do it. They will go out, they will go door to door and do all these different things. But that which you do as a Christian is to come forth from ceasing. Because then if, there, if there's a ceasing, then everything you do is spiritual. You know what I'm saying. If you go to work and, and you are in rest and you're walking with God, work can be spiritual. Even though it's a physical thing, if you understand what I'm saying. You take care of your home. If God wants you to do that, it can be a spiritual thing. Take care of kids. Oh, you, you know, you're going to receive all the reward because you teach. I'm taking care of kids. It has nothing to do with it. It's talking about a ceasing in here. People, you may not believe this, but the playing field is level. If you understand what I'm saying, what you do as a Christian is to move forth from your life, from rest. All the works that come forth from your life personally and from this church is to be done from ceasing, from rest. Because that's where the reward will be, you know. Uh, you know, we all might be really surprised. I'm talking about not just here. I'm talking about generally Christians. Very surprised when we get on the other side and we're going to see what works have stood and what works have not. And we're going to be surprised, I think. And, and we're, we look at, at certain individuals or certain or churches or whatever, and, and what's produced from them, we say, wow, look at all that. And God may look at it and say, I see things differently. God accomplished, think about this. God has accomplished more from the seventh day, because it's a perpetual thing. He's done more in rest than he did in the creation before. If you can, as an example, can understand that. Jesus chooses 12. Why didn't he choose 50? If he could get 12 that have ceased from their own labors, and it took quite a bit to break Peter, you see, but eventually Peter was you know, to the place where he was ceasing from his own labor. In the day of Pentecost, you can see it. And all this stuff comes out, produces all this stuff, <laughs> all these things you see in Acts. He didn't need 50 or 1,000. He needed 12 who ceased from their own labors. Doesn't take a lot. Where the word of God is quick and powerful, powerful and sharper, it has the capacity to cut efficiently. It can cut much more efficient, efficiently than the most skilled surgeon can.
You take a skillful surgeon, and sometimes they cut, and they think they get everything that they're trying to get out and, and find out later that they didn't. And they're the best, the best of the best. But the Word of God can cut efficiently. Have you ever had the Word of God cut something out of your life that wasn't to be there? Sometimes it's a whack, and it's gone. And other times, it's like very meticulous, where he gets in there, it's like, mm, it's real slow. He's mm, mm, mm. cutting, cutting, taking his time. And then it may take a period of weeks, months, years, and boom, that thing's out. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing, piercing, penetrating. Even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. See, the soul, when you see in the Old Testament the word soul used, that, that's talking about the soul and spirit. And they're, they're, they're so intertwined that it's, it's called soul in many places. But God can get in there by his word Right where the, the division is, and he can just, you know, he, he can use his word and do all kinds of things on both areas. It's just wonderful, wonderful how God has things set up. You know, he, he is a loving God. He's graceful God. I, I can't tell you how many times God has just shown me his grace. When God takes his time with us, with his word, you know, dealing with something, you know, he's not the God who's going to grab a lightning rod and, you know, knock you out. In my experience, if you have a heart to, to go on with him, he's like the skilled surgeon with his word, and he will work and work in a loving way, and he shows his grace in such a wonderful fashion. And when he's done, you say, Lord, you are God and you are Lord. Only you. Men would not give you grace. Only you, Lord, would be gracious enough to give me grace and merciful enough to give me mercy when I need it. We want to write someone off because of something that's going on in their life, and God's there with his word, and he's working. And he's showing grace. And he's going to perform a surgery in time. He's going to remove that which needs to be taken out. And I see his grace in my life, and I said, Lord, you are wonderful. Help me, Lord, to be Gracious like you. You know, it's not easy sometimes to be gracious with people. And that's because we're receivers of grace many times and not givers of it. We need to get into the area where, where we're giving it. And he showed grace to every single one of us here today. So the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifested in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of whom, with whom we have to do. I want to read that from the Amplified in closing. And not a creature exists that is, not, that is concealed from his sight, but all things are open and exposed, naked and defenseless to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So you can't hide, we know that you can't hide anything from God. He sees it. But we can believe him that he, through his word, can come into the heart, our heart, and show us the thought and the intents, or, or you can say the attitude, what's there. Not for the purpose of beating us up, but for the purpose of his word doing a work and cutting out that which is hidden there by us or hidden to us. And the word of God is such that if we do not harden our hearts, as in the provocation, we open our hearts now to the work of God, and, and he does a tremendous thing through his word. Oh, we have a tremendous hope, and we have a God that loves us and is gracious to us. When we are down on ourselves and we stumble at our own faults, and we think that there is no hope, remember that we serve the God of all grace. And the God who can use his word to touch us and to do what needs be done for our benefit. Great God we serve. Great God. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word and how you use your word, Lord. I pray that for all of us here today, that you would teach us, Lord, how to cease. And that we would move in the ceasing so that we can move and enter into the rest that you so desire. I pray that you continue your work in our lives. We'll give you the praise and the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name. <clears throat>